We'll turn now to our scripture reading this morning, which comes from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 to 25. You can find that on page 572 in the Pew Bible ahead of you. Our focus has shifted to Elisha, and it will remain there for some time. And before we read from 2 Kings 2, verses 19 to 25, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have brought us into the time of instruction. And so we pray that you would give testimony to yourself in the word preached. Use it to glorify yourself in the hearts of all who hear, to enlighten the ignorant and awaken the careless, to reclaim the wandering, establish the weak, Comfort the feeble-minded and make ready in all of us a people prepared for our God. Use your word in all your purposes. This word from your book in 2 Kings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings 2, starting in the 19th verse. The men of the city, that is Jericho, said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see. But the water is bad, and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. You know, as we turn into the first couple chapters here of 2 Kings, we see that Elijah has gone. We were with Elijah for quite some time, and Elijah has gone being ascended into the glory of God, with the glory of God in the, in the whirlwind, and all that remains of Elijah is his cloak or his mantle, which has fallen down to the ground, and Elisha had picked it up and placed it on himself, and he carries on in the spirit and in the ministry of Elijah, which is very good news for the people of God because the people of God had depended on Elijah for protection from enemies, both foreign and domestic. And so that Elijah continues on in that ministry is crucial. And if there was any question remaining about whether or not Elisha was the successor to Elijah's ministry, it is dispensed with very quickly, very easily here in this, this couplet of stories. As they say, the question is, is he Elijah's successor and the proof is in the pudding? And these two stories are proof that indeed he is. And here we see Elisha doing miraculous things as Elijah had done. 
But Elisha does those things not in his own power, but in the power given to him by the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord works in Elisha both for salvation and for judgment and destruction. That's what we see in these two stories. In the, in the first one, in the healing of the water in Jericho, we see the word of the Lord working for the purpose of salvation. Then in the second account, there we see the word of the Lord working through Elisha for destruction. Now I'm going to do something this morning that I very rarely do, but I want to take the passage out of order. Because the passage goes from salvation to destruction, but I want to go backwards and go from destruction to salvation. And the reason for that the reason for that is, is not that I think the author should have written them in reverse order, of course, and not that I don't think there's, there's value in reading them in the way the author had given them. And if I had a chance to preach two sermons from the passage, I would preach them in the opposite order. But since I have one opportunity to preach, and I think that Jesus often turns things around, I want to turn them around in order to better lead us to Jesus. You know, last week we read together from the first two questions and answers of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Catechism, like so many of the Reformed documents, does a very good job of taking profound, big concepts and, and making them simpler. And when you, when you read the first question, the question is, well, well, what is my only comfort in life and in death? And my only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and how, what is it, the second question is, what do I need to know to live and die in that comfort? And it says three things. I need to know the, the great gravity of my guilt before God. And I need to know the great grace of God to me in Jesus Christ. And I need, and I need to know what it is that I should do to live in gratitude to God for that great grace. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. All the scripture is put into that very simple paradigm, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And because it goes guilt, grace, I want to take these passages in that order, guilt, and then grace. So let's start there with the bald prophet, the mob of youths, and the bears. We'll start in verse 23. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him, Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. Before we get to the, the mockery of the man of God, we will look first at the location. Oftentimes, when the scripture gives us a location, it gives us a location for a reason. And we had seen this, this last week, if you were with us, this last week, Elijah and Elisha walked through Bethel, and then they walked through Jericho, then they went back across the Jordan. So Elisha is retracing their steps together, and he comes to Bethel. And Bethel is this cult center. It's the, it's the center for the worship of Jeroboam's golden calf. And it's a place very unfriendly to the Lord, and very unfriendly to the Lord's prophets. And so there's, there's no love lost between Elisha and the people of Bethel. This is a place of, of great idolatry. And so Elisha is going along the road. And that's a good place to stop as well. Because Elisha is not in town. He's on the road which goes around the town. 
and that he's on the road around the town means that these youths have come out for the purpose of harassing him. It isn't like Elisha's walking down Main Street Bethel and there's a, a small group of kind of nasty schoolboy guys who see the bald guy walking down the street and he's a stranger and they start making fun of him. It's that these, these youths, and youth now kind of covers anybody from about age 12 to your mid-20s. So these aren't real little boys. These are uh, either men boys or, or at least coming of age boys. And they have come intentionally outside of the city for the purpose of harassing Elisha, the Lord's prophet. And then they say, go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. What do they mean by that? Well, obviously, Elisha is bald. That part is, is very plain for us to see. But the, the go on up can really mean one of two things. And I think it means the second thing more than the first. But but the first it could mean is that the, the youths have heard that Elisha had gone on up, or Elijah had gone on up. Anybody else get confused by Elijah, Elisha? I'm talking about Elisha. So if I say Elijah, just pretend like I said Elisha, okay? They'd heard that Elijah had gone up to heaven in this, in this whirlwind, and as he'd gone up, Elisha comes along. Now maybe they believed that Elijah was gone, or maybe they didn't. Either way, they're, they're mocking Elisha, saying, you, you just go on up too. We don't need you around here. Why don't you just, why don't you just go to heaven with your, with your God that you love so much? We don't care about you. We don't care about him. Or... Elisha is on his way past Bethel, through Bethel, up to a more mountainous region, up to Samaria, and eventually to Mount Carmel. So as he goes up on this ascending road, they're essentially saying to him, get out of here. We don't need you around here, we don't need your kind around here, and we definitely don't need your God around here. Either way, they don't want anything to do with the prophet, and they don't want anything to do with the prophet's God. Then we see that in verse 24, this isn't really their best idea. He turned, Elisha turned around, looked at them, <clears throat> and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Calls down a curse on them. Seems like a little bit of an overreaction, doesn't it? I mean, okay, these guys are being not so pleasant, but it turned the other cheek, right? Just, just go on walking. But, but it's, it's more than that. Because Elisha is not just an ordinary bald guy. Elisha is a prophet. And not just a prophet, he's the prophet. This is the Lord's main prophet at the time. E Elisha represents the presence of God with his people. And so when the youths mock Elisha, they are mocking God. And like Paul says in Galatians, God will not be mocked. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. And these, these young men, they have sown in mockery. They have sown in idolatry. They have sown in destruction. And they will reap the destruction which they have sown. And if we are, and if we are tempted to think that Elisha has overreacted, we see very quickly that God didn't think he had overreacted. If God had thought he had overreacted, the bears wouldn't have come out and mauled the youths. That, that the bears come out shows that God thinks that Elisha is reacting properly. But then notice this. 
the Bears Mall, 42 of the youths. This is not just a, a small gathering of young boys. This is a malicious mob of men in the prime of their youth. This is an intentional effort either to harm the prophet or to make him think that he could very well be harmed if he stays around. This is not an innocent situation by any means. And so these bears, who are stronger than these boys in their youth, come out. Now, what's the lesson here? What's the lesson here? Of course, you shouldn't make fun of the holy man with hair loss. That's a good lesson. But the second lesson is this. God is merited in the destruction of those who dishonor him. And we see that. And we see that very plainly in this passage. As, as Ralph Davis says, these are covenant bears. These are God's bears. And these bears are nothing other than exactly what God had said he was going to do. If we would think for a moment, well, God doesn't agree that Elisha overreacted, but perhaps God overreacted. We see that, that God has only done precisely what he had promised he was going to do. Remember that the book of Kings always has as its backdrop the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy tells us specifically what the kings are supposed to be like and more generally what Israel is supposed to be like. And the whole book of Kings is kind of like a report card on the kings and on the nations that they ruled over. And so one of the things that Deuteronomy says is that God is not to be mocked. We see this in Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 10. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. God has done nothing other than what he said he was going to do. These are, these are covenant boys or young men. They are the ones to whom Moses had given the law. These, these are young men who should have known better, and they don't. And so they act foolishly, and they reap the consequences of their foolishness. And then if we want even a, a more specific example of how God acts exactly according to his word, we can look at the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 26, verses 21 and 22. This is what the Lord says. If you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you which shall bereave you of your children. No surprises. The people of Bethel have simply reaped what they had sown. God only does what he had said he was going to do. He proves himself to be a man of his word, so to speak. Now, okay, that's Deuteronomy, that's Leviticus, that's Kings, but we're New Testament people, right? We are New Testament people. And in the New Testament, there is a, a heightened emphasis, we might say, on mercy, on grace, on forgiveness, on patience, on love, and that's true, and that's good, and we rejoice in that. But we shouldn't for a moment think that the theme of God's just judgment disappears in the New Testament. 
And Jesus speaks of it plainly, and I think he speaks of it in even more striking terms than is used in the Old Testament. Just a few examples from Matthew, from Matthew, and from Revelation. Matthew 7, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That sounds like it comes straight out of Deuteronomy. Matthew 10, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Revelation, all from the lips of Jesus. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The way Jesus speaks about those things makes being mauled by a bear almost seem merciful in comparison. And so we recognize very plainly that we ought to turn to God in humility and in faith. And the lesson from the the 42 youths, the bears, and the bald-headed prophet is very simple. It's not a good idea to play with God. But again, God is not to be trifled with, and he will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. But though death and judgment have the last word in this couplet of stories, thankfully, praise God, they don't have the last word in God's story. And so we go back and we look at the, we look at the first set of verses here, starting in verse 19. The men of the city, again, the city is Jericho, said to Elisha, Look, our Lord... This town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. And again, location is key to our understanding. They're they're in Jericho. The men of this city are the men of Jericho, and Jericho is a cursed city. And Jericho had been a cursed city for a very long time. After Joshua had leveled it and destroyed it, he had placed a curse on the city back in Judges, uh, rather back in Joshua 6. Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. The city of Jericho is not even supposed to exist. And that it does exist is told to us back in 1 Kings chapter 16. And so when Elisha comes back across the river Jordan and he comes to Jericho, he comes to a cursed city. He comes to a city which had been rebuilt, though it wasn't supposed to. He comes to a city which has a history of destruction. He comes to a city upon which a curse had been laid. And he comes to a city which even the water of the city is under the curse. It's death water. In fact, we might say that, that as the, the translation says, the water is bad and unproductive. A number of scholars have said that a better translation might be the water is bad and it causes miscarriage. People are dying because of the water. And this makes sense. If you hop down to verse 21, Elisha speaks specifically, specifically about the water not causing death any longer. So this, this is a city under a strong curse. And the people of the city come, come to Elisha in humility, and they say, Our Lord, this is the situation. And they ask that he would heal it. We see what he does in verse 20. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. 
So they brought it to him. And what a goofy thing to ask for. Right? Bring me a bowl and salt. Salt doesn't really usually make water good. Right? That's not usually a typical way to make uh, water you don't want to drink drinkable. But he asked for a bowl and he asked for some salt. Well, well couldn't, he have just, couldn't he have just healed the water with a word? Well, well sure he could have. And Moses could have and Jesus could have. Remember that Moses, when he wants to make the bitter water sweet, he takes a piece of wood and he tosses it into the spring and the water becomes sweet. And Jesus often uses illustrations as well. Sometimes Jesus says, rise and walk. And the man rises and he walks. And sometimes Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud, and puts it on the blind man's eyes so he can see. For whatever reason, Elisha asks for the salt and the bowl, and he throws the salt into the water. Now this is, this is not magic. It's miracle. All right, there's a distinction. God never acts magically. God acts according to his own power, which is miraculously. And we see then in verse 21 and 22 where this power comes from because Elisha is clear. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. How does Elisha begin? This is what the Lord says, right? This is not what Elisha says. This is not what the prophet has done. This is what the Lord says. And then quoting the Lord, I have made Right? I have healed. This is what the Lord has done. Elisha takes no credit for himself. He is very plain who has the power to heal and who has the power to give life. And it is not him, but it is God. And for how long has the water been restored? Until this day, the author says. The author of Kings lives at least 200 years after the life and ministry of Elisha. So this is hundreds of years in which the bad water has been turned into good water. When the Lord heals, He heals in perpetuity, as they say. Now consider the turnaround here. Jericho is a cursed place. It is a place with a bad history. It is a place which God had torn down. When, when Joshua comes with the Israelites, God knocks all the walls down and He instructs the people to go in and destroy everything and everybody except for Rahab the prostitute and her family because the Lord had chosen her. And not only had He chosen her, but He chose to put her in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. Talk about uh, un, unexpected people to be ancestors of the perfect son of God, but he destroys everything in the city except for Rahab. And then the curse is laid on the city, and then it's rebuilt, and the guy who rebuilds it loses his firstborn son and loses his lastborn son, and then the water causes death. And all of a sudden, just like that, the prophet comes to town, and God's word shows up, and God's word changed everything. Doesn't it still today? Ralph Davis again says here in this story, Curseville has become Graceburg. That which God had hated becomes that which God loves. As the prophet Isaiah says, those walking in darkness 
have seen a great light. You know, we live in a cursed world too. Not just figuratively, we live in a literally cursed world. Ever since our first mother took her first bite of that forbidden fruit and gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it, nothing has ever been the same. Now thorns and thistles are produced by the ground. Man works and eats by the sweat of his brow and then he dies. The author of Ecclesiastes rightly says, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, a chasing after the wind. Women have pain in childbirth. Men and women have conflict. Men have conflict with men. We have conflict with God. Even the creation itself waits and groans under the weight of the sin which we have afflicted it with. It doesn't take doesn't take a spiritual genius to walk down Main Street in town somewhere and see that things aren't supposed to be the way they are. All you got to do is go out this door, take a left, and look at the grave to see that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. That we live under a literally and in a literally cursed world. And we are not exempt. We struggle and toil. We feel pain. And we die. We are not exempt from curse. But we will not always be under the curse. Because the word of the Lord has come into our lives just as it had come into the city of Jericho. And when the word of the Lord comes into our lives, it comes in the form of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with his gospel, it comes into our lives and it changes everything. Because Jesus was not exempt from the curse either. He had toil and he felt pain and he wore the thorns of our curse and he was dead, but no longer. He no longer toils. He no longer has pain. The thorns have been replaced by the crown of glory and he was dead, but now he is alive. Everything changed for him. And everything will change for us. Because he has overcome curse and has become forever blessed and in him we overcome curse and we will be forever blessed he is free and in him we are free jesus is not just like elisha not just like elisha who preached the word of the lord Jesus is the word of the Lord. That's how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is the Word of God in the flesh. Jesus is the one who heals the water at Jericho. Jesus is the one by His power the bears come out and maul the youths. Jesus is the Word who spoke all things into being and by whose power all things continue in being. And it is Jesus who will speak the Word one day and make all things new. Jesus is the Word that gave power to Elisha's ministry, and Jesus is the Word that gives eternal life even to sinners 
like us. Jesus is the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord changes everything. It's saved in Jericho. And it saves today. And you know that. At least I'm sure most of you know that. You know that. But you, you look at yourselves and you see someone who's not only afflicted by the curse, but you see someone that perpetuates the curse. You see someone who is probably a worse sinner than other people around you would suspect. And you look at your own life, and you know all the right answers, right? You, you know that God saves sinners, and, and you, know that, you know that God accepts you, and you know that God is love, but you look at yourself, and sometimes you might say, but, but I'm not sure that He really loves me. He, he accepts me, I know that, but does He really love me? Am I lovable? Am I lovely to God? And you ask that question because we have not comprehended the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. That Jericho was a disgusting place. And God gave it grace. And then he loved it. God loves disgusting people such as we were. And he gives them grace. And he changes them. And he loves them. Do you remember our Jesus? Do you remember the, the depths of his grace? Do you remember that, that in Mark 5, in a corresponding story in Matthew, that he goes walking he goes walking along the way and he walks past a place where there's a bunch of tombs. And there there's a man who is possessed by a whole legion of demons. And the man would howl and he would cut himself. And they tried to bind him with chains, but they couldn't because the demons gave him strength that he would break the chains. And he went, he went around screaming and self-mutiling. All the people were afraid of him. And Jesus comes to this demon-possessed, self-mutilating, gross guy, and he casts all the demons out. He puts him in his right mind, and then what does he do to say, all right, you're fine, go along. No, he, he says to that man, you will be one of the very first missionaries who will carry the, the good news of salvation in my name to your people. He loves him, and he sends him out in that love. And do you recall our Jesus? He takes a sinful, prideful, hate-filled murderous jerk of a Pharisee. He knocks him on his face, changes him in a moment, and makes him to be the second most influential person who has ever lived since Christ with the exception of Christ himself. The Apostle Paul. Oh, I'm sure will be so much nearer the throne in glory than me that I will not even be able to see him. Such is the grace and glory of God. 
and the love of God. Do you remember that Jesus is the Jesus who was doted on and delighted in and who delighted in reformed prostitutes, tax collectors. He even made a tax collector one of his 12 disciples. And then he even, in his providence, had that tax collector write the first book in the New Testament. Such is the depth of the grace and the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. He ministers to serial divorcees and to adulterers. If Jesus can love those people, He can love you. If He can save those people, He can save you. And for how long can He love you? Well, how long was the water of Jericho healed? It was healed forever. And so too, when you are healed, you are healed and loved forever. It's exactly like the book of John says, that those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. From death water to life water. From cursed sinner to heaven-bound saint. And from the one who has no hope to the one who has an undying hope. That's Jericho's story. And that's our story. Lord Jesus, we are so glad that you are one who saves. You are one who loves. Who loves not because we first loved, nor certainly because we were lovely, but who loves because you love those for whom it makes no sense to love. You love out of your grace. You love out of the Father's election, and those whom you love, you save. And save not for a time, but forever. Those whom you love, you wash away sin, and you remove the curse, and you give eternal life to. And we rejoice that we can look at places like Jericho and see that your grace would even go to Jericho, that your grace would even go to the man filled with demons, that your grace would even go to Paul, who would save himself, that he was the worst of sinners, that your grace extended to prostitutes, adulterers, tax collectors. We pray that we would learn the lesson from the youths and the bears, that we would not mock you nor act as you were one who was impotent, who has no power, but instead that we would turn in humility and faith to come to you who has the power of healing.
When all the rest of the followers had left, you turned to the twelve and you said, Will you not leave also? And the apostles said, To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. So we pray that our hearts would be linked with theirs. Where else could we go to find such life and love? There is no one else. And so we ask that we would go to no one and nothing else except to you. We pray in your own glorious name. Amen. We'll stand together now and sing. We'll turn now to our scripture reading. This morning, which comes from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 to 25. You can find that on page 572 in the Pew Bible ahead of you. Our focus has shifted to Elisha, and it will remain there for some time. And before we read from 2 Kings 2, verses 19 to 25, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have brought us into the time of instruction. And so we pray that you would give testimony to yourself in the word preached. Use it to glorify yourself in the hearts of all who hear, to enlighten the ignorant and awaken the careless, to reclaim the wandering, establish the weak, Comfort the feeble-minded and make ready in all of us a people prepared for our God. Use your word in all your purposes. This word from your book in 2 Kings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings 2, starting in the 19th verse. The men of the city, that is Jericho, said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see. But the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. You know, as we turn into the first couple chapters here of 2 Kings, we see that Elijah has gone. We were with Elijah for quite some time, and Elijah has gone being ascended into the glory of God, with the glory of God in the, in the whirlwind. And all that remains of Elijah is his cloak or his mantle, which has fallen down to the ground. And Elijah had picked it up and placed it on himself, and he carries on in the spirit and in the ministry of 
Elijah, which is very good news for the people of God because the people of God had depended on Elijah for protection from enemies, both foreign and domestic. And so that Elijah continues on in that ministry is crucial. And if there was any question remaining about whether or not Elisha was the successor to Elijah's ministry, it is dispensed with very quickly, very easily here in this, this couplet of stories. As they say, the question is, is he Elijah's successor and the proof is in the pudding? And these two stories are proof that indeed he is. And here we see Elisha doing miraculous things as Elijah had done. But Elisha does those things not in his own power, but in the power given to him by the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord works in Elisha both for salvation and for judgment and destruction. That's what we see in these two stories. In the, in the first one, in the healing of the water in Jericho, we see the word of the Lord working for the purpose of salvation. Then in the second account, there we see the word of the Lord working through Elisha for destruction. Now I'm going to do something this morning that I very rarely do, but I want to take the passage out of order. Because the passage goes from salvation to destruction, but I want to go backwards and go from destruction to salvation. And the reason for that the reason for that is, is not that I think the author should have written them in reverse order, of course, and not that I don't think there's, there's value in reading them in the way the author had given them. And if I had a chance to preach two sermons from the passage, I would preach them in the opposite order. But since I have one opportunity to preach, and I think that Jesus often turns things around, I want to turn them around in order to better lead us to Jesus. You know, last week we read together from the first two questions and answers of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Catechism, like so many of the Reformed documents, does a very good job of taking profound, big concepts and, and making them simpler. And when you, when you read the first question, the question is, well, well, what is my only comfort in life and in death? And my only comfort is that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and how, what is it, the second question is, what do I need to know to live and die in that comfort? And it says three things. I need to know the, the great gravity of my guilt before God. And I need to know the great grace of God to me in Jesus Christ. And I need, and I need to know what it is that I should do to live in gratitude to God for that great grace. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. All the scripture is put into that very simple paradigm, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And because it goes guilt, grace, I want to take these passages in that order, guilt, and then grace. So let's start there with the bald prophet, the mob of youths, and the bears. We'll start in verse 23. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. Before we get to the, the mockery of the man of God, we will look first at the location. Oftentimes, when the scripture gives us a location, it gives us a location for a reason. 
And we had seen this, this last week, if you were with us, this last week, Elijah and Elisha walked through Bethel, and then they walked through Jericho, then they went back across the Jordan. So Elisha is retracing their steps together, and he comes to Bethel. And Bethel is this cult center. It's the, it's the center for the worship of Jeroboam's golden calf. And it's a place very unfriendly to the Lord and very unfriendly to the Lord's prophets. And so there's, there's no love lost between Elisha and the people of Bethel. This is a place of, of great idolatry. And so Elisha is going along the road. And that's a good place to stop as well. Because Elisha is not in town. He's on the road which goes around the town. And that he's on the road around the town means that these youths have come out for the purpose of harassing him. It isn't like Elisha's walking down Main Street, Bethel, and there's a, a small group of kind of nasty schoolboy guys who see the bald guy walking down the street, and he's a stranger, and they start making fun of him. It's that these, these youths, and youth now kind of covers anybody from about age 12 to your mid-20s. So these aren't real little boys. These are uh, either men, boys, or, or at least coming-of-age boys. And they have come intentionally outside of the city for the purpose of harassing Elisha, the Lord's prophet. And then they say, go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. What do they mean by that? Well, obviously, Elisha is bald. That part is, is very plain for us to see. But the, the go on up can really mean one of two things. And I think it means the second thing more than the first. But, but the first it could mean is that the, the youths have heard that Elisha had gone on up, or Elijah had gone on up. Anybody else get confused by Elijah, Elisha? I'm talking about Elisha. So if I say Elijah, just pretend like I said Elisha, okay? They'd heard that Elijah had gone up to heaven in this, in this whirlwind, and as he'd gone up, Elisha comes along. Now, maybe they believed that Elijah was gone, or maybe they didn't. Either way, they're, they're mocking Elisha, saying, you, you just go on up too. We don't need you around here. Why don't you just, why don't you just go to heaven with your, with your God that you love so much? We don't care about you. We don't care about him. Or... Elisha is on his way past Bethel, through Bethel, up to a more mountainous region, up to Samaria, and eventually to Mount Carmel. So as he goes up on this ascending road, they're essentially saying to him, get out of here. We don't need you around here, we don't need your kind around here, and we definitely don't need your God around here. Either way, they don't want anything to do with the prophet, and they don't want anything to do with the prophet's God. Then we see that in verse 24, this isn't really their best idea. He turned, Elisha turned around, looked at them, <clears throat> and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Calls down a curse on them. It seems like a little bit of an overreaction, doesn't it? I mean, okay, these guys are being not so pleasant, but it turned the other cheek, right? Just, just go on walking. But, but it's, it's more than that. Because Elisha is not just an ordinary bald guy. Elisha is a prophet. And not just a prophet, he's the prophet. This is the Lord's main prophet at the time. E Elisha represents the presence of God with his people. 
And so when the youths mock Elisha, they are mocking God. And like Paul says in Galatians, God will not be mocked. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. And these, these young men, they have sown in mockery. They have sown in idolatry. They have sown in destruction. And they will reap the destruction which they have sown. And if we are, and if we are tempted to think that Elisha has overreacted, we see very quickly that God didn't think he had overreacted. If God had thought he had overreacted, the bears wouldn't have come out and mauled the youths. That, that the bears come out shows that God thinks that Elisha is reacting properly. But then notice this. <clears throat> the bears maul 42 of the youths. This is not just a, a small gathering of young boys. This is a malicious mob of men in the prime of their youth. This is an intentional effort either to harm the prophet or to make him think that he could very well be harmed if he stays around. This is not an innocent situation by any means. And so these bears, who are stronger than these boys in their youth, come out. Now, what's the lesson here? What's the lesson here? Of course, you shouldn't make fun of the holy man with hair loss. That's a good lesson. But the second lesson is this. God is merited in the destruction of those who dishonor him. And we see that. And we see that very plainly in this passage. As, as Ralph Davis says, these are covenant bears. These are God's bears. And these bears are nothing other than exactly what God had said he was going to do. If we would think for a moment, well, God doesn't agree that Elisha overreacted, but perhaps God overreacted. We see that, that God has only done precisely what he had promised he was going to do. Remember that the book of Kings always has as its backdrop the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy tells us specifically what the kings are supposed to be like and more generally what Israel is supposed to be like. And the whole book of Kings is kind of like a report card on the kings and on the nations that they ruled over. And so one of the things that Deuteronomy says is that God is not to be mocked. We see this in Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 10. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him. To his face. God has done nothing other than what he said he was going to do. These are, these are covenant boys or young men. They are the ones to whom Moses had given the law. These, these are young men who should have known better, and they don't. And so they act foolishly, and they reap the consequences of their foolishness. And then if we want even a, a more specific example of how God acts exactly according to his word, we can look at the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 26, verses 21 and 22. This is what the Lord says. If you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you which shall bereave you of your children. 
No surprises. The people of Bethel have simply reaped what they had sown. God only does what he had said he was going to do. He proves himself to be a man of his word, so to speak. Now, okay, that's Deuteronomy, that's Leviticus, that's Kings, but we're New Testament people, right? We are New Testament people. And in the New Testament, there is a a heightened emphasis, we might say, on mercy, on grace, on forgiveness, on patience, on love, and that's true, and that's good, and we rejoice in that. But we shouldn't for a moment think that the theme of God's just judgment disappears in the New Testament. And Jesus speaks of it plainly, and I think he speaks of it in even more striking terms than is used in the Old Testament. Just a few examples from Matthew, from Matthew, and from Revelation. Matthew 7, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That sounds like it comes straight out of Deuteronomy. Matthew 10, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Revelation, all from the lips of Jesus. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The way Jesus speaks about those things makes being mauled by a bear almost seem merciful in comparison. And so we recognize very plainly that we ought to turn to God in humility and in faith. And the lesson from the the 42 youths, the bears, and the bald-headed prophet is very simple. It's not a good idea to play with God. But again, God is not to be trifled with, and he will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. But though death and judgment have the last word in this couplet of stories, Thankfully, praise God, they don't have the last word in God's story. And so we go back and we look, at the, we look at the first set of verses here, starting in verse 19. The men of the city, again the city is Jericho, said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. And again, location is key to our understanding. There, They're in Jericho. The men of this city are the men of Jericho. And Jericho is a cursed city. And Jericho had been a cursed city for a very long time. After Joshua had leveled it and destroyed it, he had placed a curse on the city back in Judges, uh, rather back in Joshua 6. Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. The city of Jericho is not even supposed to exist. And that it does exist is told to us back in 1 Kings chapter 16. And so when Elisha comes back across the river Jordan and he comes to Jericho, he comes to a cursed city. He comes to a city which had been rebuilt, though it wasn't supposed to. He comes to a city which has a history of destruction. He comes to a city upon which a curse had been laid. And he comes to a city which even the water of the city is under the curse. It's death water. In fact, 
we might say that, that as the, the translation says, the water is bad and unproductive. A number of scholars have said that a better translation might be the water is bad and it causes miscarriage. People are dying because of the water. And this makes sense. If you hop down to verse 21, Elisha speaks specifically, specifically about the water not causing death any longer. So this, this is a city under a strong curse. And the people of the city come, come to Elisha in humility, and they say, our Lord, this is the situation. And they ask that he would heal it. We see what he does in verse 20. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And what a goofy thing to ask for. Right? Bring me a bowl and salt. Salt doesn't really usually make water good. Right? That's not usually a typical way to make uh, water you don't want to drink drinkable. But he asked for a bowl and he asked for some salt. Well, well couldn't, he have just, couldn't he have just healed the water with a word? Well, well sure he could have. And Moses could have, and Jesus could have. Remember that Moses, when he wants to make the bitter water sweet, he takes a piece of wood and he tosses it into the spring, and the water becomes sweet. And Jesus often uses illustrations as well. Sometimes Jesus says, rise and walk, and the man rises and he walks. And sometimes Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud, and puts it on the blind man's eyes so he can see. For whatever reason, Elisha asks for the salt and the bowl, and he throws the salt into the water. Now this is, this is not magic. It's miracle. All right, there's a distinction. God never acts magically. God acts according to his own power, which is miraculously. And we see then in verse 21 and 22 where this power comes from because Elisha is clear. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day according to the word Elisha had spoken. How does Elisha begin? This is what the Lord says. Right? This is not what Elisha says. This is not what the prophet has done. This is what the Lord says. And then quoting the Lord, I have made Right? I have healed. This is what the Lord has done. Elisha takes no credit for himself. He is very plain who has the power to heal and who has the power to give life. And it is not him, but it is God. And for how long has the water been restored? Until this day, the author says. The author of Kings lives at least 200 years after the life and ministry of Elisha. So this is hundreds of years in which the bad water has been turned into good water. When the Lord heals, He heals in perpetuity, as they say. Now consider the turnaround here. Jericho is a cursed place. It is a place with a bad history. It is a place which God had torn down. When, when Joshua comes with the Israelites, God knocks all the walls down and He instructs the people to go in and destroy everything and everybody except for Rahab the prostitute and her family because the Lord had chosen her. And not only had He chosen her, but He chose to put her in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. Talk about uh, un, unexpected people to be ancestors of 
the perfect son of God. But he destroys everything in the city except for Rahab. And then the curse is laid on the city. And then it's rebuilt. And the guy who rebuilds it loses his firstborn son and loses his lastborn son. And then the water causes death. And all of a sudden, just like that, the prophet comes to town and God's Word shows up. And God's Word changed everything. Doesn't it still today? Ralph Davis again says here in this story, Curseville has become Graceburg. That which God had hated becomes that which God loves. As the prophet Isaiah says, those walking in darkness have seen a great light. You know, we live in a cursed world too. Not just figuratively, we live in a literally cursed world. Ever since our first mother took her first bite of that forbidden fruit and gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it, nothing has ever been the same. Now thorns and thistles are produced by the ground. Man works and eats by the sweat of his brow and then he dies. The author of Ecclesiastes rightly says, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. A chasing after the wind. Women have pain in childbirth. Men and women have conflict. Men have conflict with men. We have conflict with God. Even the creation itself waits and groans under the weight of the sin which we have afflicted it with. It doesn't take, doesn't take a spiritual genius to walk down Main Street in town somewhere and see that things aren't supposed to be the way they are. All you got to do is go out this door, take a left, and look at the grave to see that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. That we live under a literally and in a literally cursed world. And we are not exempt. We struggle and toil. We feel pain. And we die. We are not exempt from curse. But we will not always be under the curse. Because the word of the Lord has come into our lives just as it had come into the city of Jericho. And when the word of the Lord comes into our lives, it comes in the form of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with His gospel, it comes into our lives and it changes everything. Because Jesus was not exempt from the curse either. He had toil and he felt pain and he wore the thorns of our curse and he was dead, but no longer. He no longer toils. He no longer has pain. The thorns have been replaced by the crown of glory and he was dead, but now he is alive. Everything changed for him. And everything will change for us because he has overcome curse and has become forever blessed. And in Him, we overcome curse. And we will be forever blessed. He is free. And in Him, we are free. Jesus is not just like Elisha. Not just like Elisha who preached the Word of the Lord. Jesus is the word of the Lord. 
That's how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is the Word of God in the flesh. Jesus is the one who heals the water at Jericho. Jesus is the one, by His power, the bears come out and maul the youths. Jesus is the Word who spoke all things into being, and by whose power all things continue in being. And it is Jesus who will speak the Word one day and make all things new. Jesus is the Word that gave power to Elisha's ministry, and Jesus is the Word that gives eternal life even to sinners like us. Jesus is the Word of the Lord. And the Word of the Lord changes everything. It saved in Jericho, and it saves today. And you know that. At least I'm sure most of you know that. You know that. But you, you look at yourselves and you see someone who's not only afflicted by the curse, but you see someone that perpetuates the curse. You see someone who is probably a worse sinner than other people around you would suspect. And you look at your own life and you know all the right answers, right? You, you know that God saves sinners, and, and you, know that, you know that God accepts you, and you know that God is love, but you look at yourself, and sometimes you might say, but, but I'm not sure that He really loves me. He, he accepts me, I know that, but does He really love me? Am I lovable? Am I lovely to God? And you ask that question because we have not comprehended the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. That Jericho was a disgusting place. And God gave it grace. And then he loved it. God loves Disgusting people, such as we were. And he gives them grace. And he changes them. And he loves them. Do you remember our Jesus? Do you remember the, the depths of his grace? Do you remember that, that in Mark 5, in a corresponding story in Matthew, that he goes walking he goes walking along the way and he walks past a place where there's a bunch of tombs. And there there's a man who is possessed by a whole legion of demons. And the man would howl and he would cut himself. And they tried to bind him with chains, but they couldn't because the demons gave him strength that he would break the chains. And he went around, he went around screaming and self-mutilating. All the people were afraid of him. And Jesus comes to this demon-possessed, self-mutilating, gross guy, and he casts all the demons out. He puts him in his right mind, and then what does he do to say, all right, you're fine, go along. No, he, he says to that man, you will be one of the very first missionaries who will carry the, the good news of salvation in my name 
to your people. He loves him, and he sends him out in that love. And do you recall our Jesus? He takes a sinful, prideful, hate-filled, murderous jerk of a Pharisee, knocks him on his face, changes him in a moment, and makes him to be the second most influential person who has ever lived since Christ with the exception of Christ himself. The Apostle Paul. Oh, I'm sure will be so much nearer the throne in glory than me that I will not even be able to see him. Such is the grace and glory of God and the love of God. Do you remember that Jesus is the Jesus who was doted on and delighted in and who delighted in reformed prostitutes, tax collectors? He even made a tax collector one of his 12 disciples. And then he even, in his providence, had that tax collector write the first book in the New Testament. Such is the depth of the grace and the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. He ministers to serial divorcees and to adulterers. If Jesus can love those people, he can love you. If he can save those people, he can save you. And for how long can he love you? Well, how long was the water of Jericho healed? It was healed forever. And so too, when you are healed, you are healed and loved forever. It's exactly like the book of John says, that those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. From death water to life water. From cursed sinner to heaven-bound saint. And from the one who has no hope to the one who has an undying hope. That's Jericho's story. And that's our story. Lord Jesus, we are so glad that you are one who saves. You are one who loves. Who loves not because we first loved, nor certainly because we were lovely, but who loves because you love those for whom it makes no sense to love. You love out of your grace. You love out of the Father's election. And those whom you love, you save. And save not for a time, but forever. Those whom you love, you wash away sin. And you remove the curse. And you give eternal life to. And we rejoice that we can look at places like Jericho. And see that 
your grace would even go to Jericho, that your grace would even go to the man filled with demons, that your grace would even go to Paul who would save himself, that he was the worst of sinners, that your grace extended to prostitutes, adulterers, tax collectors, We pray that we would learn the lesson from the youths and the bears that we would not mock you nor act as you were one who was impotent, who has no power, but instead that we would turn in humility and faith to come to you who has the power of healing. When all the rest of the followers had left, you turned to the twelve and you said, will you not leave also? And the apostles said, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. So we pray that our hearts would be linked with theirs. Where else could we go to find such life and love? There is no one else. And so we ask that we would go to no one and nothing else except to you. We pray in your own glorious name. Amen. We'll stand together now and sing.